Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, how are we doing, Covenant family? So good to see you all here. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're continuing a series that I've been very, very excited about uh, for a number of weeks now leading up to it. We're in week two of the return of the King, talking about the return of Jesus, systematically kind of going text to text, looking at what the Scriptures teach us uh, about this event. And we're going to talk today uh, about what do we know for sure. There's going to be a lot of speculation, a lot of, a lot of places where Christians have differing opinions, particularly around the timeline of things and who's who and all of those kinds of things. We're going to dive into that eventually, but we first need to ground ourselves into what has been the universal consensus of the body of Christ for 2,000 years. What do we know for sure? And I think there's a particular reason we have to do that relative to where we're standing geographically in the West. Human beings, and especially Westerners, we are captivated by the unknown, are we not? We want to know what we don't know. Sometimes it just drives us crazy. Some of that is God-given. Some of that is, is, is a result of his image stamped onto us. Human beings naturally have inquiring minds. We want to follow lines of inquiry. We love solving a good mystery. Millions of dollars, in fact, have been made in murder mystery events. Anybody ever been to something like that? We did that about a little more than 10 years ago where you, you come in and they give you a little card and you're, you know, you're whatever, maybe I'm, I, I, don't, I don't even remember the character's names, but I, I always go back to Clue in the 1980s. So just call me Mr. Green, all right? Mr. Green, Colonel Mustard, Miss Scarlet, whatever. Everybody takes a different identity. Sometimes you really get into it and you dress up. That's a little weird, but not sinful, right? And, and so you really get into the, the action of this, and, and you're, you're moving through the night in this whole murder mystery thing, and you're trying to figure out who done it. And 10 years ago, my wife ended up being the murderer, so I've been sleeping with one eye open ever since, right? But we love stuff like that. People spend money on those kinds of things. It's the same reason escape rooms have become so incredibly popular, because we like puzzles. We like solving puzzles. We like being able to claim that we walked into a room and figured everything out and have all the clues, and now I know something you don't know. Nah, 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 nah. Right? We, there's just something about us that loves to, to be able to claim that. And sometimes we take that same disposition to the text of Scripture, and when we do that, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it gets us into some trouble. I remember growing up, there were some really popular books. I referred to some of these last week. Uh, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth was very, very popular. The New York Times, by the time I was literate, had already declared it the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. Lindsey threw out that book, and then his follow-up as well, Count Dunn Armageddon, was seeking to connect biblical passages about end-time events with events that were occurring right there as Joel Rainey as a little boy and later on as a teenager was living and breathing. And I remember being warned about through ominous cartoon tracks about UPC symbols and computer chips and a one world government. And if you turn on Christian television today, you'll see that not a whole lot's changed. I mean, the names have changed and the countries have changed 
because the names and countries they used 40 years ago, a lot of them don't even exist anymore, and it never happened. And you would think at some point we would apply Deuteronomy 18.22, but nope, they keep on prophesying. And, and you'll notice the patterns just are the same. There's just no shortage of, of prophecy teachers trying to help you fit the puzzle pieces together. Here's the problem. And it really is a foundational issue, not only for prophecy, but how you understand your Bible. I'm not trying to cap on some teacher that I disagree with this morning. I want God's people to know how to wield the sword, and you're not going to wield it rightly if you don't understand the Bible is not a puzzle to be solved. It is a message to be received. And there are things about it, certainly there are things in there that are unclear, there are things in there we got to work through, but it's a message. God has revealed himself to us in these pages. Everything he wants us to know, and then for those of us who are naturally curious, this part's going to hurt, he's also decided to keep some things to himself. And when you start knocking up against some of that, he says through experience, through the silence of his word, none your business. Go back to where I told you to go. I'll reveal that. Don't believe me? It starts as early as Deuteronomy 29. We read the following. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Then we read something else, the contrast to this. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's things he's revealed for our benefit. There are other things that he's kept from us, and it's not our job to tread there. And this isn't a new problem. You go all the way back to the first century, Paul spoke to Timothy about a group of people who were teaching speculative things about the end of the age to the extent that they were saying, hey, that final resurrection already happened. We haven't covered preterism yet as a school of thought, but basically those were the first preterists. The preterists today would beg to differ with that, but they're wrong and I'm right. I'll tell you why in subsequent weeks, right? But, but that's what they were doing. This has already happened, all right? It, it's not happened yet. And here's what Paul told Timothy about that. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, avoid irreverent babble. It's one thing to have an opinion. It's one thing to debate. It's, one, it's another thing to just, blah, 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 right? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. When the fruit of what's being taught is immorality or violence or hatred, there's a pretty good chance at the source of all that is irreverent Bible. Paul told Timothy that 2,000 years ago. He said in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. That's another way of saying the secret things really are not our business. When you find yourself sitting under a teacher who spends more time trying to unplug puzzles for you and pull back the curtain for you and show you what's really going on with things that we really don't know, and they spend more time doing that than they do explaining to you what God has clearly revealed, it's probably time to find yourself another teacher. Doesn't mean these issues aren't worthy of attention. Doesn't mean that there aren't some biblical subjects that are very deep. It doesn't mean we don't need to stand on thousands of years of scholarship and the shoulders of men and women who've come before us who've wrestled with some of these same issues. It doesn't mean we can't have conversations about them. Those things are coming. Antichrist, mark of the beast, some of you are salivating even as I utter those words. Yep, it's coming. You may not like what I have to say about it. You may not agree with me. You know what? That's okay. Some of that is not entirely clear. We have to be okay with that. Today we ask this question, what do we know for sure? 
What do we know for sure? We talk a lot here at Covenant about what we call closed-handed versus open-handed issues. So over here, this is the stuff that is absolutely non-negotiable. If you want to be a pastor here, and especially one that's on our payroll, you got to believe everything in this closed hand. All right, so that would include things like the, the, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, his virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture, not just inspiration, inerrancy. We're, we're knuckleheads about that around here, and we think for really good reason. All right? And over here, there's open-handed stuff. Right? There's just stuff that's it's okay to, to disagree. A lot of what we're going to talk about after this week gets into some of that stuff. What's the timing of the rapture, the tribulation? Is it present, past? future? What's the millennial kingdom? All that. How does that, how does that work out? What are those various sort of understandings of it? It's fine. Those questions are important now, but more important are the closed-handed questions. What do we know for sure? Those questions are important to us because they were important to the Thessalonians. Now, this is a really interesting church. It has an interesting history. It, it was planted as a result of Paul and Silas preaching in synagogues in the city. So you can find the account of that in Acts chapter 17. If you want to go home and read a little bit of the backstory, the history of this, that's where you can find it. And a number of people in those synagogues did believe in Jesus as their Messiah. A majority did not. And of that majority, some of those people got really, really angry and began to hate on these new believers. And the result was eventually persecution breaks out in a really... I'm not talking about the stuff we call persecution today, okay? Listen, loss of liberty is a serious thing, something we, I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up, I'm not saying, I'm saying don't call stuff persecution that's not persecution, and ain't nothing we faced in the last year persecution. Persecution is what these brothers and sisters face. If you call anything you've had to deal with in the last year persecution, you're not going to make it through what's coming. You're just not. Persecution is when you go to Facebook some morning and they go, wow, did you see the news? The authorities came into church yesterday. They dragged Pastor Joel out of the pulpit, took him out in the north parking lot, put a gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and blew his brains out. That's persecution. And the Thessalonians are like, is there some of this coming? Like, what's going to happen? So this, this gets real in this moment. Paul and Silas are eventually forced to leave prematurely. So you've got these people that are persecuted, they're charged with sedition against Caesar, and, and then you have, it's almost like an, an unplugging of something. Like some of you guys watching on YouTube this morning, we didn't have a Facebook feed, probably because something in California, Facebook got unplugged suddenly, right? Uh, something happened that was beyond the control of these followers of Jesus, and the plug got pulled, and the apostolic witness that started that church was pulled away from it, which left the teaching interrupted. And so at some later time then, Paul and Silas send Timothy back to Thessalonica. Hey, let's check on these believers. And because of that incomplete teaching, what Timothy found when he returned was a grieving congregation. They were sad, they were depressed, they were despondent, they were hopeless, they, they lost many of their loved ones probably as a result of that, that inflamed amount of persecution that was there. And, and these family members were grieving because of something they did not know. And so th this is one of the joys of being a pastor is, is there are times when you just can't solve the problem immediately in a single session with somebody. There are times, especially if there's been abuse or there's some kind of weird 
kind of thing going on with extended family where you got to work for months. There are times when you may never see the end of it, but there are also times, and it's one of the great joys of my life, has been at least as a pastor, when someone comes into my office and the longer they talk, the more I realize, listen, read more Bible, pray more, doesn't solve every problem, but it, it brings me such joy to recognize when somebody, they, 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 they tell me their story and I go, there's a piece missing and I know what it is. Like, you ever felt that way like toward another person? Like, I can help them. I can help them. And it's because of something in the scriptures that they don't yet know. And I get to give them hope and encouragement and put steel in their back and equip them for the service God has called them to because I get to tell them something that was previously unknown and they now know that's what Paul is doing here. That's what he's doing. And so he chooses to teach them about the second coming of Jesus. He says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those, those loved ones that you're grieving. And you, there are things about that experience we never got to tell you because we had to leave the city. And now that Timothy is back and we find that, that you're missing some information that could empower you, I don't want you uninformed. More particularly, I don't want you uninformed because if, if you remain uninformed, you'll grieve as other people do who have no hope. You're going to grieve. We're going to mourn with you. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus said that last fall. I want you to have hope even as you grieve those who have passed on before you. And that hope is found in divinely inspired knowledge that I now give you so that you're no longer uninformed. The etymological root of that term uninformed is the same word from which we get our word agnostic. No knowledge is what it effectively means. I want you to know something that will give you hope. See, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about all kinds of things around the return of Jesus that are not immediately or at least finally clear to us. Sometimes it's because our fallen, limited minds don't perceive what is written in the right way. Sometimes it's because God intends to keep some of those things to himself, and it's not really our business. But when the Holy Spirit wants you to know something, brothers and sisters, he makes that knowledge clear in the written word of God. And this knowledge of the future has a basis in the past. Paul goes on in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the, the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice he says, by a word from the Lord. You may or may not notice that every time we read Scripture publicly here, one of our deacons, one of our pastors reads it, and they always conclude by looking at you and me and saying, this is the word of the Lord. Every time you hear that, it ought to instill confidence in you. It ought to give you a sense of hope that perhaps you didn't have before. And Paul tells us that as well. He told the Thessalonians this, I, by a word from the Lord, I tell you this as though the Lord is telling you this. What I'm about to say, that's exactly how certain this is. And so you don't need to be anxious about your loved ones who've passed away. Paul elsewhere reminds us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We talked about this a little bit last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Four years after he wrote these words to Thessalonica, he writes those words to the Corinthians. And so the body is in the ground. If it was a traditional burial or it was in the urn, if it's a cremation, 
the soul, the spirit that occupied that body is now, if that person has passed on and they knew Christ, they are in the presence of Jesus. That's what Scripture teaches. That's clear. We know this. We know this. Because Jesus rose bodily from the dead. They have that hope. But then Paul says this, don't worry. They're not going to miss out on anything when the end comes. And here's why. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus rose in the body, from the dead, in the past, so we can have confidence that everyone who believes in him will experience a bodily resurrection in the future. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, and to you and me when we grieve, those loved ones aren't going to miss out. In fact, when Jesus returns, they're going to be at the front of the line. And so here, here's his overall point. He's grounding his teaching in God's work in the past He's combining it with anticipation of a certain future that God has declared. And those two things, when they come together, define how you and I ought to live in our present. How do I live today? And so there's, there's five things that we know absolutely for sure. The first is this, the return. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. You hear that? I will come again. That's what he said in John 14. Paul took that seriously. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, we've got to break this apart a little bit because there's some, some battle language here that we need to understand. Archangels, it was always understood in the ancient world, have authority over other angels. They're sort of like the five-star generals of this angelic host. In all of Scripture, we only have two of those who are called out by name to us. They're probably not the only two, but they're the two that are revealed to us, Michael on the one hand, Gabriel on the other. And if you, if you do a, just a basic search in the Bible for every time those two names pop up, whenever and wherever they show up, something big is about to go down, something big. And so it's the commanders of these angelic armies that lend their voice apparently to the blast of a trumpet and a cry of command, which I'm going to get to in a minute, that announces Jesus' final descent from heaven. John, in the book of Revelation, actually defines this in equally graphic terms. He says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. No mistake. Is he here? Is this happening? Is it? Well, maybe there's a... Well, let me go back to my Rubik's Cube and figure out. Let me go to my crystal ball. No, no, no. You won't have to ask any questions. When this starts to go down, everybody knows. Everybody sees. Everybody hears. You really think the God of eternity incarnate in Christ Jesus could split the eastern sky and some people would actually wonder what's going on? When he gets ready to do that, it's done. And everyone will know, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you. The angelic messenger who appeared at Jesus' ascension back to his father, there in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, and he says, this Jesus, why, why are you, do you remember that? Why are you standing here? They're just kind of like, I, I, I probably would have been too. Like, wow, that was cool. Like, and, and all of a sudden there's this angelic messenger and he says, this Jesus who departed from you will come back in the same way that you have seen him go up. 
So here's the one thing we know. Based on the word of the Lord, Jesus is coming back personally, physically, literally, visibly, powerfully, triumphantly with a cry of command. That language isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. You can search from Matthew to Revelation. You will not find it anywhere else but right here in Thessalonians. And so if you want to explore a little bit of how that language was used, when was it invoked, what were the circumstances for its employment in the ancient world, you've got to go to classical Greek literature. And every single time it's invoked in that wider body of literature, it's referring to the start of a battle. The start of a war. Uh, it's going to be a really short war. We'll get to that in coming weeks. But, but it's, it's, it's the start of enmity. It's a cry of war against one's enemies. Here's the bottom line. Paul wants these grieving Thessalonians to know Jesus will return. And with that return comes the realization of all of the hope that he calls them to. Let me tell you, there's a day coming when this is going to end. I want you to know, first and foremost, as you grieve the loss of your loved ones, as you sit in the rubble of what persecution has given you, you chose, see, we, we live in the West where coming to Jesus means I get a better sex life, and coming to Jesus means I get a better marriage, and coming to Jesus means I get to keep my religious liberty, and coming to Jesus means I get more money, and coming to Jesus means I get more self-fulfillment, and coming to Jesus means that I get closer to the top of Maslow's pyramid, all the way to self-actualization. And one of the things we remember that Scripture teaches is, yeah, you, you come to Jesus to get Jesus. He's it. He's not a means to the end. He's not something you plug in so everything else you get gets better. That might be icing on the cake. I'm not saying that if you don't put biblical principles of wisdom into practice that you won't, generally speaking, have a better quality of life. That's actually true. I'm saying you and I don't have the promise of that in this world. Think about a group in Thessalonica who believed and who were looking forward to all these great things, and by the time Timothy gets back, they're despondent because they've just had the wind knocked out of them. They've lost everything. Paul says, here's what you need to know. Don't live for the present moment. Jesus is coming again with a cry of command, which kind of begs another question. What enemy would there be? Who's he talking about here? Well, Paul's next words help us answer that question. Paul says there's not going to just be a return. There's going to be a resurrection. Verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those loved ones that you're concerned for, they get to go first. You get to watch them go. So right now their souls are present with the Lord, but their, their bodies rest in the grave, rest in the urn, wherever they might be. Just as Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, your loved ones will be also. And at the return of Jesus, they will burst up like seeds from those graves. And like Jesus, their bodies will be transformed. And most importantly, this will signal the ultimate and final defeat of death. Yeah. Yeah, that's the enemy alluded to with the war language. You, you've heard me say this time after time here at Covenant. We have dear friends who are sincere followers of other religions, Jews and Muslims in particular. We love them. We work with them. 
And you're like, why in the world? Because, because our culture has taught us to hate people that are different from us, to believe differently, uh, that, that believe differently than us. And I've told you time after time, you and I have one enemy according to the Bible. His name is Satan. Everybody else is somebody Jesus died to save. Anything less than that, whatever you're believing is not Christian. And you might actually find yourself to be the enemy of God. One enemy. Well, actually, there's two. Satan is the animate enemy. He's alive. He's conscious. He's a person. We believe that here. But there's also an inanimate enemy, right? And we face this. We face little expressions of this in our day-to-day lives, don't we? We have, we have animate enemies. Maybe it's that nasty person you work with that you wish would quit. Maybe it's that family member that causes all the drama at Christmas. Maybe you've got that sort of animate individual that it's always making your life a little bit more miserable. But then there's the inanimate enemy. Cancer, heart disease, accidents, tornadoes, hurricanes, what theologians call natural evil, which sometimes can, can even be more painful because if you've got an animate enemy, at least you know why he's ticked at you. When these, un, un, when these inanimate things come at you, you don't, you don't know. You don't know. But the enemy being alluded to here is the inanimate enemy. It's death. It's death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told the following. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. You're like, why is there still death? Why is there still destruction? Why do we still grieve? Because the last enemy hasn't been defeated yet. That's, that's yet to come. But we are promised, just as surely as we are promised that Jesus will return, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's he saying? He's saying when you hear the war cry of the king of kings on that day, accompanied by trumpet blast and the voices of the commanders of his armies, and you begin to see the bodies and souls of your loved ones reunited as they rise to meet the Lord in the air, you can know that your last enemy is no more. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope. And over the next few years, weeks, we're going we're to cover the, the full spectrum of views around the end of the age. But this, what I'm teaching you now is something the church in near unison has believed since the very beginning. Jesus' return will result in resurrection, physical, literal, eternal resurrection. Our physical bodies are going to be raised. They're going to be transformed. They're going to be glorified. No more metformin, no more blood pressure meds, no more eyeglasses, no, no, more, no more heart medication, no more surgeries, no, no more x-rays to determine whether or not that, that vein is, or that, that, that artery is clogged. No more of any of that any longer. Glorified. Back to where God intended everything to be from the beginning. And then when that happens, it'll be reunited with our immaterial souls. And from that moment, our eternal souls and our resurrected glorified bodies will be united for eternity with him and with each other. And we will never, ever, 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 ever die again. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope. Now, then comes this question. Paul's probably anticipating this from his, his audience. What if we're still here when all that goes down? So he's covered all of his bases. Because like, Paul doesn't know. Paul doesn't know when it's going to happen. All right? 
Somebody on television that sets a date, this idiot that 10 years ago set a date, had a radio station, all kinds of ministries and everything else, and May something or another, 2011 is when it was supposed to happen, and, all that. and this is when it, people that People that tell you on such and such a date, such and such is going to just remember two things. Paul didn't know. Jesus didn't know. That ought, to get, that ought to be a clue. Okay? That ought to be a clue. And so Paul says, i got to cover my bases here with my, with my people. I don't, because I don't. The secret things, God has kept to himself. I don't know everything. It's another thing to keep in mind. If the if those who wrote the scriptures under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit didn't know everything, that prophet don't know squat either, 20 centuries later. Go to the written word of God. What if that's still? So, so here's, here's the base that he doesn't cover, that he covers. What, what if we're still alive when it happens? Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up if you've got to highlight it, if you're like me and you're using a tablet, circle it. If you're using the old-fashioned book form of this thing, the word caught up. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's something we today call the rapture. Now, why do we call it the rapture? Well, we call it the rapture because the Greek word there, harpazo, which just means to be caught up, when the Bible was translated into Latin around the late 4th century, the term in Latin that translated Harpazo was the term raptere. That's, that's where the, rap, the word rapture comes from. It's just, just a, just means catching up. So if you've ever wondered, what's the rapture? Well, that, this is where it comes from. And, and actually, the picture here is pretty sudden. It's violent. We are going to be swept up. Think, of, think about being a really small vessel out in the middle of the ocean. Very first time I ever mounted a jet ski in my life was in the Bahamas, and I was 18 years old, and you should already know just by those facts that this story doesn't end well, right? And, and so I, I mounted that thing. I was, I was a senior in high school. Uh, the folks there were, you know, showing me how to use it and where the throttle control and everything, and this is what you do, and if you fall off, this is how you do it. And then the last thing they pointed me to were these orange cones. And they said, that out beyond the waves, you, you won't be able to control this. Stay within the boundary. That's the last thing they showed me, the boundaries. I ignored them because I was 18 and invincible. Right? And so I got out there, and all of a sudden, have you ever, maybe you're driving a car, you've got a, a wreck, an accident experience or something, and you know, you know kind of how this feels. You, you can go back in your mind, and you know almost to the second, the moment you realized, oh, I've done, done something bad. Like, I was out there, and I realized I can throttle up all I want. I ain't going forward. I, I'm, I, I, I can steer. I can lean. I can throw all of my body weight. And I'm a big old boy. I was a big old boy back then. Not as big as I am now, but that's another story. Didn't matter. I'm in the ocean. You know where I'm going? Wherever those waves take me. I got no control over nothing. And the only reason I am standing here and had, did not become shark food way back then is because those waves were gracious enough to sweep me in a direction to get me back within the bounds so that I could get back to the beach. That's the picture here. It is a resistless, no, no, hang on, Lord, I got to go get my jewelry. Like, yeah, that, that's not happening. 
It's resistless, it's sudden, it's swift because it is divine. And it causes us to meet the Lord in the air. Now we see that word meet in another place in the New Testament. We see it in Matthew 25. There's a parable of 10 virgins. Half of them are ready. They go out and they meet the bridegroom. Why do they meet him? They meet him to accompany him back to the wedding. Almost inevitably when this word is used in the ancient literature, it's used uh, as a means of, of going out to meet, have a rendezvous with a VIP or a dignitary of some sort. You know how this works. Somebody comes to our nation they, they don't just get off the plane and there's nobody there, right? There's a red carpet. There, there are our government officials there to welcome them. This is the way you welcome a dignitary, a very important person. So the idea is we, we go out to meet him and we accompany him back. You don't have to agree with me on what I'm about to say, but I do believe that we get some clue in that grammar as to where this is going to incur in the grand order of end time events. It is most likely that this is the beginning of the millennial kingdom and they're going out in this rapture type event, and they meet him in the air, not as a means of going to heaven with him, right? We'll have a guest speaker here in December, and I'm going to meet him at the airport. I'm not meeting him at the airport so I can get on the plane with him and fly back to Mobile, Alabama. I'm meeting him at the airport so I can bring him here, right? I, I think that's the picture. Again, that, that's one of those unclear areas. You don't have to agree with your pastor on that. Here's the other thing you need to know. Paul doesn't clarify that here either. And so without other New Testament texts, we can't even really have a rational discussion with certainty about the timeline of the end. The timing of this event is in relation to, to other events that are not mentioned here. Once we get into those areas, we, we just have to admit that we, we start wading into waters that are less clear. And so I, this is something really important to emphasize here. Don't try to answer questions that the text itself does not ask. Okay, these are the divinely inspired words of Scripture. My curiosity, however sincere, never overrules this, ever. Because the minute it does, I'm off on some godless rabbit trail, and I'm taking people with me, All right? So we've got to be very, very careful here. What's important is not what raises my curiosity. What's important is what the Holy Spirit, through his inspired author in the Word of God, intended to say. God gets to set the conversation, not me and not you. That sound fair enough? I mean, we're talking about God here. That sounds more than fair to me, right? Here's the other side of that. Do take comfort in what the text says here. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, there will be a catching away of everyone who believes in him, and will be united at that moment with him and with all of our loved ones who've passed. And that brings us to this next step. There will be a reunion. I love these words in verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. From that moment forward, it will never, ever end. It will never end. And to this group of discouraged, grieving, persecuted Thessalonian Christians, anxious about the fate of their death, love, of, of the death of their loved ones, Paul brings a certain truth. When Jesus returns, both they and you will be back together in his presence and you will never be separated again. Now, it's a little different over there. Got to go to other places in the Bible to understand this, but my wife will not be my wife in heaven, okay? 
So, because that, that relationship, we just celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary this weekend. I love that woman more than my own life. But neither of us should love each other more than we love Jesus. God is that ultimate relationship. Marriage is to be lifelong, but temporary. It has an end date. It has an end date. And at some point, one spouse is going to bear the other one. My father just had to do that for my, my precious mother. There's a lot of grief in that, still walking through a lot of that. That's the intention to point us to a greater reality. Our ultimate relationship is with the Lord. But here's the thing, I will see her again, and she me. We'll be brother and sister there. The relationship will be different, but it will also be better because we will be glorified. We will be healed. We will be sanctified. We will be holy. We will be in that moment everything that God intended for us to be in the presence of everyone that we love. That's good news, isn't it? I'm going to see people that I have not seen since as their pastor. I stood at their graveside and read this very text. It's the reason this is one of my favorite ones. It's almost like I'm looking into the ground and going, I'm, I'm going to see you again because I know I am. Because God's word tells me that I am. And so will you. Those loved ones that you miss, those loved ones that even right now there's a little lump in your throat and you're trying to fight back tears. Maybe it's been years since you've seen them and they've passed on, but they knew Jesus. And you take some comfort in the fact that they're in the presence of Jesus. And so you know they're doing exponentially better than you, but you still miss them. You still grieve the loss. You still feel, especially if it was a spouse, like there's a part of your body missing. That parent that, man, was just your rock and now they're gone and what's going to happen to them? God forbid people in this room or people watching me have lost a child before or after birth. Amy and I have got two that we lost by miscarriage waiting for us over there, waiting for us. And that's the whole purpose of this text. The whole purpose of, of, of what we call eschatology, eschatos is just the Greek term that means last, the study of last things, the end of it. Christians believe in a linear history. One thing comes right after another, and then there's the end. There is a terminating point, and the whole purpose of teaching about it is to bring us comfort. And part of that comfort is there's going to be a reunion. And, and because of all of this, there is now an application. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words that's it speculate therefore speculate therefore argue about the timing therefore uh, anathematize other people because they got a view, different view of israel than you do therefore anathematize people because they got a different view of antichrist than you do therefore uh, no here's what you know this is what I'm laying you Everything else, you're welcome to talk about, but at the end of the age, yeah, until the end of the age, you, you're probably not going to know it as fully as you think you do. So have a little humility and do this instead. Encourage one another with these words. When I, when I read these words, it reminds me that when I used to read those books and, and watch those really really bad movies, like they were just bad B-roll movies. And I had a hard time getting to sleep. The result of studying the second coming when I was younger was worry and angst and stress. I, it, it just lets me know when I read phrases like this that there was something I wasn't doing right. And the same thing is true today. 
If people seek to scare you by teaching you about the end, if there's more emphasis, let me put it this way, even the book of Revelation begins in this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't spend more time on the evil than you do the good. You're going to find yourself brainwashed if you do that. Focus on the good. If people scare you more than they give you hope, they're not doing it right. Think, think of it this way. Think of the difference between a crystal ball and an x-ray. I had a friend of mine who gave this example. I thought, it's wonderful. I'm stealing that. And he said, yeah, it's all yours. Take it. He said, I probably got it from somebody else too. Crystal balls, they're vague. I'm not going to ask who's been to one of these people, but, but I've seen movies. I, I don't imagine it's any less silly, go do it in real life. And you get that person and they're all dressed weird and they sit on that table and there's that big, looks like a bowling ball to me, but at any rate, it's there and it's kind of shiny and they put their hands around it. And, and, and what, do you, what do they begin to see? I see this, I see that. I mean, and they're trying to prognosticate your future, but it's, it's, it's vague, isn't it? It's vague. And then you start filling in the blanks for them because they're that good, right? You start filling in, I see this, I see... I mean, they're trying to orient you towards something that's coming in the future. And that's all you can think about, but it's vague. By the way, it's also pagan. So if you're a follower of Jesus, stay away from that crap. It's satanic. Another sermon for another day. Think instead about an x-ray. All right? I have a, let's say I have a fracture this afternoon. I go to the ER. They scan it. They put it up on the board right? Backlight comes through. Oh, yeah, look at that hairline fracture, right? There it is. Oh, look, he broke this bone in his, I don't even know what that's called, but some of you are doctors and you know what it is, right? So yeah, he broke this. Oh, oh look, that left ventricular artery, we're going to have to do something there. We're probably going to have to stint that. What is an x-ray? You hold it up and it shines through absolutely everything and it, and it, and it reveals to you, here's what's happening. X-rays provide clarity, clarity. That's what this subject ought to do. And clarity should bring encouragement, comfort, assurance that the suffering that we endure in this world, I don't know if it's going to get better or if it's going to get worse. I don't know. But here's what I know. I can sleep tonight because God is on his throne and Jesus is coming back and everything will come together in the end. The end is coming. Here's what I know for certain. There will be a return. There will be a resurrection. There will be a rapture. There will be a reunion. And I am greatly encouraged by all of that. I hope you are too. I really do. When we read a text like this, we're, we're reminded that the study of the end doesn't really look so much like a lot of the prophecy charts that you see looks a lot more like a funeral service. In fact, we are, this is probably true of every church, but I, I know this from experience having been here for almost six years now. We are at covenant perhaps at our most theological around here when we gather around a grieving family to lay their loved one to rest. We cry and we mourn with them. And we do that because we know that death is not natural. It's not what God intended. It's a horrible curse. It is the last enemy. This wasn't the way God originally intended things to be. We, we, 
during the service, usually we'll read a text like Psalm 23 or John chapter 11, and we will remember that in Jesus we have already been delivered from the power of death. And so that provides some level of comfort even as we still feel the sting of the loss of that other individual. We place the body, at least if it's a traditional burial, in a casket to remember the metaphor of sleep. This is what Jesus used. It's what the apostles used. That They're, they're resting now. It, it conveys that intermediate state. We then put our loved ones under the ground recognizing that the dust from which we are made will eventually return to dust. Even in the 21st century with all of our abilities to prepare the body well. If you leave it down there long enough, eventually if you dig and go looking for it, there won't be much left of it. We will return to the earth. But we also do it in the hope and the knowledge that one day that body will be called out of its grave, reunited with the soul of our, soul of our loved ones, and it will rise again. You know why? Because all of Christian theology points to an end where Jesus overcomes the satanic reign of death and restores God's original creation order in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, here's the question. Do you have that hope? I, mean, I, I said earlier, eschatology shouldn't make you afraid, but that's if you belong to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, maybe you should be. But the good news is that God has not left you ignorant either. You see, Jesus is coming again. And that, that doesn't have to be a, a, a source of fear for you. It can be a source of comfort for you if you recognize that he already came once. And in doing so, he lived a life in your place that you are incapable of living because of your sin, that you are separated from God because of your sin. And then Jesus built the road back to God, both in living the life you should have lived in perfection and dying as your substitute and bearing the wrath of God in your place and proving that it was effective and that his way is the way and the truth and the life by his resurrection. And if you'll come this morning, turn from your sins, put your faith and your trust in what he did, apart from anything that's in your past or whatever, you can have eternal life. And we're told in 1 John 5 this very thing, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. See? The whole message today, hasn't it? It's been about what can we know for sure? You can know that you have eternal life. And you can know today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, th thank you for making clear to us those things which you desire to bring us hope and comfort and encouragement, empowerment, and equipping, those things which should put steel in our back, those things which will remind us to have the posture of the early church. Jesus is Lord, no matter what. Jesus is Lord as we suffer. Jesus is Lord as we seek to wrap our arms around those who hate and persecute us. Jesus is Lord as we serve rather than seek to be served. Jesus is Lord as we serve each other rather than clamoring for more power and more influence and more cultural prestige. Because one day you will prove it to be true to the whole world. And so as we look forward to that moment, Heavenly Father, I pray for people to, to jump on that train today, Lord. May they turn from their sins. May they put their faith and their trust in you. And may you be glorified in these next few moments 
by the response of your people and those yet to become your people to your perfect and clear word. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.